we're not advocating becoming a Pauline Christian or a Zoroaster. Yeah, we are. Become all of them. <laughs> or a Stoic. All their hats. Last week on Mind Matters, in our second discussion of Zarathustra and Zoroastrianism, we talked about some of the similarities between Zoroastrianism and Christianity, early Christianity. And we got into a little bit from Timothy Ashworth's book, Paul's Necessary Sin, The Experience of Liberation. That will be the book we will be discussing today. But before getting into that, I just wanted to highlight a few things from our shows on Zoroastrianism that will be relevant um, in the discussion of early Christianity, specifically Paul. So one of the things about Zarathustra was that in his figure, in Zarathustra as a person, we see what is the nature and the purpose of, or the role of a prophet. And so in in Zarathustra, we see that for him, it is the ability and the capacity to speak truth and to battle lies. Of course, in Zoroastrianism, there is the kind of fundamental primordial battle between truth and lies or good and evil. And so it's it's the prophet's role to identify that and to speak that, to point out what is wrong basically to be a guide for kind of the benchmark of what is true and what is false. And the way that happens is that it is revealed within the prophet. So the prophet, typically, you know, a prophet will hear the voice of God and then share that word with the people. Often, um, as stated in the Bible, often not to the pleasure of the people around him because he is revealing um, difficult truths. So, one way of putting it, and this was, I believe, in West's book, the, the Hymns of Zoroaster, one way of putting it is that the prophet is the, a healer of existence. And as we'll see in Paul's case, for Paul, a prophet is a reconciler, bringing a reconciliation between, uh, between the world, between people, between humanity and God, or between spirit and the flesh. Another thing that comes out in Zoroastrianism is the nature of spiritual transformation. And in, in the case in that religion, what we see is that the, the nature of that transformation is to come into alignment with these kind of higher principles, with the higher will, basically with God's will. In, in Zarathustra's case, that would be Ahura Mazda. Um, and just a, a comment on the name Ahura Mazda that we didn't talk about, that we didn't mention in the two shows that we did back uh, the last two weeks, the name can be translated as like the mindful Lord or the wise Lord, Lord of wisdom. But another way of translating it, um, because there are many ways to, is the Lord who takes thought. So if you combine all those together, the, the, the main function of the Lord in, Z- in Zoroastrianism is that has to do with attention and mindfulness and paying attention and taking things in mind. So there is this, um, there's that aspect that will become important as we as we go on. And so the the thing that the Zoroastrian comes into alignment with are the the um, the ahuras that we mentioned, the asuras, the good thought, um, right or truth, asha. And 
by coming into alignment with these things, it is then that one, or that the goal is then that one will manifest those things, that will experience good thought for themselves, and from that good thought, there will issue good words and good deeds. So you will actually consistently manifest good deeds and good actions. You will then become what you believe. Your thoughts will inform your actions, and those those thoughts and those actions will be in alignment with the kind of the right half of creation and out of alignment with wrong or evil or be- or evil thought or worse thought so the the idea inherent in this is that there is a like in our ordinary state humanity is caught between all these choices like we mentioned last week caught between good and evil truth and lies but we can't really see it for ourselves so the role of the prophet is to reveal that to us from the outside, but the goal really of that is to then um, effect a transformation in us where we experience that for ourselves from within. So we we then know good thought for ourselves and therefore can act consistently in a good way, in the right way. So there's this establishment of like a, a direct connection between these different levels of reality, these different levels of existence, between us as these individual humans and then with the the highest level of reality and then everything in between through which that that will that that attentiveness that attention and that wisdom filters so th- from the from the very godhead filters these various principles and tendencies which we then embody on earth and like uh like we saw in zoroastrianism that is the the purpose we are on earth to to be kind of avatars of that battle it's on earth that we are doing the work of God by engaging in the battle between truth and lies, for instance. So tying this back again in another way to the role of the prophet is essentially the goal is to become prophets ourselves in a certain sense. And that entails listening to and then following the guidance that comes from those good thoughts. And then finally, um, one of the the thing that Zoroastrianism kind of reveals is God's action in the world. What does God actually do, and how does that actually work? How does the you know Ahura Mazda act in act in the world? And kind of already got to that through um, through the kind of the the alignment between the good thought of the Lord and the good thought of each human. When those are in alignment, we are essentially doing God's work in you know according to this system, and one way that that's expressed in Zoroastrianism is that by doing so, we are manifesting God's dominion. Dominion is one of those six lords that is associated with, um, that are associated with Ahura Mazda. So through our own, what the, what is called piety in that, um, you know, specifically that there's, you know, that's an essential word in Zoroastrianism through our piety, we, in, we manifest God's dominion and and increase it. So the way that God uh, manifests in the world is through the people um, manifesting God's dominion. It's this. It's a a circular connection that's going on there. As we do what is right, we are enhancing the manifestation of um, of those higher uh, higher thoughts in the mind of in the mind of Ahura Mazda. So that's the picture that that I got out of looking into Zoroastrianism recently. And coincidentally or not, that is pretty much, you know, with a, with a few just minor changes of clothes, that's the picture that comes out in this book that we've been reading, uh, Paul's Necessary Sin. 
a bit about the just a bit of background on the on the book. Uh, Timothy Ashworth, Ashworth is um, um, a Quaker, and he is he has a position at the Woodbrook Quaker Study Center in the UK. And in writing this book, in the in the work that went into writing this book, he took a slightly novel um, course. Uh, a, a, a novel path in order to understand what was going on in Paul's letters. Because just like with any religious text, um, and especially one that has um, such a such a big following now and so much history, you know, unlike, Zoro- Zoroastrianism, unlike Zoroastrianism in a way, because um, there is still a Zoroastrian community, but it's not as big, and there have been, you know, periods where it's, you know, come in and out of uh, popularity, whereas with Christianity, it's it's kind of this massive thing that has acquired so much um, theological speculation and dogma and uh, and conclusions that 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 history then influences how we approach these early texts, and often to their detriment because anyone who um, who reads the 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 kind of Bible scholarship literature can see that even among pretty um, I'd call them like pretty hardcore Christians. You can like the like true believers, um, in the sense of you know their 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 scholarship is basically an extension of their um, religious practice. Even in scholars like that, you'll see how often they disagree, how often they present new interpretations of what's going on in these texts that that contradicts you know hundreds of years of um, just tradition. So what Ashworth did is he basically decided to go back to the the Greek itself and try to try to come up with just basically a good translation of these letters because oftentimes when you have a single word um, and he and he uses he gives several examples when you have a single word it'll be translated in a, in a particular way at a particular time and then that translation will then breed an, a whole interpretation that creates this kind of theological framework and structure that then is kind of hard to chip away at because it's just that's what people believe when if you go back to the original texts you as he does you um you may find that that original translation and the translation that we've been using for so many years doesn't give the the full sense of the text itself and that in fact a better a better translation might give a, an entirely different sense so he does that he starts out by well, throughout the text, but particularly in the, in the beginning, he goes through several important words in Paul's letters. Um, and I think I mentioned them, some of them last week or, you know, at some other time, but there are some important ones like being justified or justification, um, righteousness, um, the faith, uh, faith in Jesus, um, several other words like the elements of creation. What are the elements of creation? But what Ashworth does is look at all of these words, look at the you know the traditional um, classic classical definitions in the uh, in the dictionaries for these languages at the time, um, ancient Greek in this case, and then try to try to see what fits best in all situations. So is Paul using like a certain word um, consistently, and if not, well, what are the range of meanings? Because oftentimes you'll find in modern modern translations, English tra- translations of the Bible, that the same word will often be translated in one sense in one verse, and then even in the same verse or one or two verses later in a completely different sense, or a sense that isn't 
um, that just doesn't flow naturally. It's, all, it's like you're using two completely different words, where when the context of what's going on would seem to suggest that Paul's using the same word in succession for a particular reason, because he has the same, you know, small, um, either one meaning or the same small kind of closely nested connected sense of meanings in both cases. So by doing so, he comes to some pretty radical conclusions about what Paul was actually saying. He also argues that Paul is a coherent thinker. In other, in other words, that a lot of these ideas, they actually make sense with each other. They don't contradict each other because there are several scholars of early Christianity and Paul who argue that Paul is an incoherent thinker, that he's not really, you know, he, he's not really that logical. Some, he might say one thing and then contradict himself in another sense um, in something else that he says. And Ashworth argues that on the most important level, dealing with these kind of central ideas in Paul's letters, that actually they do create a coherent structure that does make sense. Each part kind of makes sense in relation to all the other parts. And that is what he seeks to lay out in this book, is to present each of these kind of, these pillars of this structure. And then by the end, they kind of all come together to create this kind of, um, um, this, well, this like, you know, beautiful kind of temple or something <clears throat> that is created or that is there that hasn't really been recognized. So sometimes um, he will come to conclusions that other scholars have agreed with. Sometimes he comes to ones that uh, go against the grain. And then a few times he comes up with something that um, hasn't really been said before. And back when we were doing Truth Perspective, I, I think I brought up a couple, a couple times Trolls Engberg Peterson's work, Paul and the Stoics. He was, he, he's written a couple books, a few books, on Stoicism and specifically Stoicism's potential influence or, um, well, potential influence on early Christianity. So he wrote a book, Paul and the Stoics, for instance. And his work, while it is strictly, um, strictly in, in, the, in that comparison of Stoicism and Pauline Christianity and showing, the, showing how they both essentially have the same structure, um, Ashworth, without, uh, I'm not even sure if Ashworth has ever read Engberg Peterson, but coming at it from a completely different angle, he reaches several of the same conclusions about this, this nature of transformation and what's, what's actually going on in, in all of these letters. So we're going to just scratch the surface today and get into a bit of what Ashworth describes and what Paul was actually saying in these early letters. So with that said, do you guys have any first thoughts after, you know, reading parts of this book? Well, yeah. Um, anybody who's been watching Mind Matters or following us over the past year or so knows that we um, we enjoy looking at different systems of belief, uh, systems of meaning, and, you know, the, the implications they have uh, throughout history and how we can, you know, take certain ideas and, you know, translate them into meaningful practice in, you know, modern life. The kinds of answers, solutions that are, that are there staring us in the face. But, you know, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, find out who did it best and, you know, see how, you know, how they did it. And that said, um, when, we, when you're reading this book, um, Paul's Necessary Sin, you get the idea that, or he, he really argues that we've been, that modern Christianity has kind of been missing the mark 
in terms of the very fundamental meaning of what Paul was doing, and that there's the only way that you can really discover the system that Paul had, as you said, that, that there was a system, a coherent system in place for these early Christians, and something very... Um, very appealing and very transformative for these early Christians is to get down into the nitty-gritty details and do the work necessary to find the meanings of the words that Paul was using that will make sense um, throughout the the entirety of his letters. And in order to do that, you he had to, you know, you have to translate one word and translate the whole sentence and translate, you know, everything and then continue to try to find something in modern English that can approximate the meaning without the kinds of biases that, you know, people kind of are are prone to um, to bring to, you know, religious texts. And in that in that sense, there, like you, you pointed out a couple words um, that we that were that have been used to understand Paul's letters that you know, in may not have been accurate because they weren't um, they weren't uh, meaningful. It, it made the passage difficult to read, difficult to understand, and so then you would say, well, he's not a systematic thinker. He doesn't. He just you know says one thing and then says another thing. Well, the problem isn't necessarily that he's an unsystematic thinker. It's the problem could be that we just have bad uh, translations of, of the words he's using. And so he goes through and he kind of, um, you know, just uh, strips away the veil of the meaning of, you know, the behind Paul's words. And you find uh, it, it makes what he says makes sense in terms of modern English. It makes sense in terms of the system of early Christianity. And by doing so, you get a glimpse into these the, the actual coherent narrative that um, comprised early Christianity, and that, it, that um, when Paul speaks of things like the flesh or the law or um, the various other things, that he's, he's speaking very plainly and he's using he's not speaking strictly of the torah when he speaks of the, the law and he's not speaking strictly of sin but he has this very very um particular system that's built out of the adamic or you know the um the age of adam um when mankind fell and the age of Christ, and the spirit that will that rejuvenates people and gives them the ability, like you were saying, to prophecy, to tell the truth, and that by adopting the spirit within that the this the spirit that is both within you and is objectively its own fact, it's a, it's an objective thing that allows you to to speak the truth that by doing this you become saved and then you are able to live a life of faith but that it's a very systematic you know kind of step by step thing that it's not just that now that i proffer belief in christ i'm saved but it's rather that once you have seen this once the spirit has lived in you then that is proof that you are uh, a Christian. That this spirit was like this defining piece that 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 you couldn't pretend to be a Christian without this. That this was the the gifts of the spirit, the ability to prophecy and to speak in tongues and various other other gifts um, were an objective fact that marked whether or not you were living according to the flesh 
or whether you were beginning to grow from the childhood of living under the law of the um, whatever the law of the Torah or even the laws of the Gentiles, whatever religious law was there, you were um, you were free from that because now you had an objective independent existence that was connected to um, the God of, of truth, Jesus Christ. Well, you, did you want to say something, Alan? Or do you? Oh, go ahead. Um, you brought up a couple, well, a whole bunch of interesting things that we could go off in various directions on, Corey. One being that this, imp- the importance of this Adamic, um, you know, period of time and this Adamic event. So I hadn't realized prior to reading Ashworth, and I've read a bunch of books on Paul, you know, I wouldn't say I've read a ton, but, you know, probably more than the average person, I'll say that. And um, I hadn't realized the importance of basically the that Genesis narrative on Paul's thought. What Ashworth is basically arguing is that the 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 narrative of the fall of mankind, you know, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, is central to Paul's thought, because that basically it, it's it is a a story that tells the story of mankind um it's almost like a, itself a parable or but there's some it's it's tough because there he, he often takes things figuratively and uses things figuratively it's hard to get an idea of if he actually if paul even actually believed there was a single man adam maybe he did but the way he the way he presents it is you know you you can take a very modern approach and see it as this this um, totally accurate story or myth about the nature of of humanity, the nature of existence, and that informs pretty much Paul, all the important things about what Paul is doing. What Paul is presenting is basically a way to reverse the fall. So all of the consequences of uh, uh, of what Adam and Eve did are rep- are manifest in the way humanity is and has been. And those, all the negative things about that state that humanity is in are what is reversed with this, uh, this kind of um, first, uh, basically this de- deposit of the spirit that the, the early Christians have, this kind of, this tidbit, this morsel of the spirit that is now um, manifesting itself and uh, inside of them, inside of their, their bodies and their minds. And what we have is this kind of grand this grand scheme, this grand um, storyline of the the fall and redemption of mankind, and it is it's just remarkable the way it all kind of fits together. You can see how how he how each element of that first story um, informs the this kind of magnificent solution to that to that predicament that mankind is in. Um, one just one idea central to that is this idea of the image of God. How um, how in Genesis. You know, mankind is created in the image of God, and then we basically think ourselves wise. We don't. Adam, um, Adam, who can, who is representative of mankind, um, disobeys the word of God, and then acquire, eats from the 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 tree, the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and acquires that knowledge. But then um, acquires now death as a result, mortality. So for Paul, this is kind of a a snapshot image of humanity that we have lost our connection with the divine. We no longer hear the word of God, which is, which comes to us via the spirit. And we are now trapped in mortality. We're trapped in these, um, 
we're, well, we're not, well, we're trapped in these bodies, but we're identified with these bodies. We become so identified with fleshly existence, which is this separate, um, separate individual self oriented, um, you know, machine that we're in this biological machine that we're in, that we lose that connection. And, and the result of that is, um, isolation as individuals and en enmity, um, the, the friction and the conflict that we then have with others, with the people around us. Did you want to say something? Well, you said identification. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the biggest themes throughout this book is identification among uh, the, the Jews and some Gentiles with the law, mm -hmm. the Ten Commandments. And one of the points that gets uh, repeatedly brought up in the book is this reliance upon and this identification with laws that are external to the individual that seek to, uh, in theory, keep us in line, but that in an attempt to mediate the uh, relationship between an individual and God, actually separate the mm -hmm. individual from God, separate uh, one's capacity to to be a living embodiment of what is a, a spark of God's divine will, uh, a shred, a, a sense of what is truly good and spiritual and quite possibly in potential innate within the human being. And this is what Paul has been trying to uh, beseech in his listeners in his, through his letters He's trying to explain through his own revelation, through his own experience of incorporating the word of God in his own understanding, in his own heart, that, that a literal reliance upon the laws of the Bible uh, are in fact limiting in an individual's attempt to, to be that, that representation of good on earth and, and what they're doing. One quote uh, from that, from the book that sort of speaks to this, and there are many, is conduct informed and enabled out of a direct and immediate apprehension of the divine will, which is pretty profound. That somehow we as individuals can have that connection, can form that sort of communication that is more or less direct, that is more or less transmitted through prophecy, through the words that Paul was transmitting in his letters. Uh, a word about the, uh, the book itself. It is incredibly rigorous uh, for my, from what I'm used to reading. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ashworth, I think, in writing this, has created a, a sheer act of love uh, and commitment in, in looking at other researchers and how they all interpreted what Paul was trying to say through their own translations and, and through their own filters. So Ashworth is really, he wants to know and he wants us to know as, as much as it may be possible to know what it was Paul was 
trying to convey at its deepest sense. And this is, I think it's a profound effort. And uh, I'm just hoping that uh, we, we come to some understanding ourselves in a revelatory way a little bit <laughs> and, uh, and, and get to some sense of uh, the power of Paul's letters and, and the work involved. One other thing I just wanted to add, and that is um, there's this, there are certain passages that, <clears throat> that talk about Jews being circumcised and how this is the outward manifestation of their connection to God along with their adherence to the laws. And something very kind of touching that Paul says is that you want to, you want to have a circumcision of the heart. You want this, uh, the, the connection to God be one of spirit and not one of a kind of literal, uh, so literal interpretation so as to have a superficial uh, and, and almost egotistical connection to, to God where you can say, I perform these rituals I adhere to these laws. I am pious because I wear this and and take this day off. There is a internal transformation uh, which seems true to me, uh, which seems correct. Uh, the spirit of something you hear that in conversation quite often. The the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. What is the spirit that that makes things truer than? the letter mm -hmm. what is the the heart of the matter that makes things more correct more righteous more uh in alignment with the the will of god mm -hmm. and well and, and that's one of those invisible things you know what is that spirit what is the spirit it's not something tangible you can't you can't just see it like you can see a red apple it's in front of you it is one of the invisible kind of eternal things of creation that we've lost the ability to see. That's one of the central ideas of the fall is that we have lost a capacity of, per of perception in our identification with our own individuality. There's, we, we, we've actually, um, our own perception and thinking processes have become subject to the corruptibility that our bodies are, are subject to. So there's this all of these things are tied together in Paul's thought that, that we are trapped in this in this mortal flesh and that mortality that death um, tinges everything around us everything that we do everything that we say everything we experience um, in our ordinary state that is all associated with this mortality and that so that would include this when we've lost that connection with the divine we've lost the ability to access or see the unseen to see the invisible things of god to see the invisible nature of god and that's what creates this um this disconnect and this the, the strife and enmity that you have between humans and uh, you know among humanity it's a result of this disconnection it's a result of this this new blindness that comes with the identification with just our physical selves and when you're talking about the um, kind of the the Jews who lived under the law and saw that as a uh, as a good thing it was uh, I like the way you put it because you know I do these things I have this status I do this I do this it basically me 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 what it all comes down to is these are all the things 
well, it's, it basically shows the inherent um, and kind of inescapable selfishness of, of humanity, at least one of its manifestations, that even in our goodness and the things that we do to, to try to be good, there's still an element of self-centeredness and, um, you know, puffing ourselves up, um, or, you know, a reason, to, a reason to boast, as Paul would put it. That, but, but all of that is, you know, as Gurdjieff would say, merit, you know, all that's shit. That's, that's all irrelevant. And, and it just shows how inured we are in this um, identification with the flesh, in this selfishness. That even our thought processes, even the way we think about ourselves, in about the, the the things that we do that are ostensibly good, even in those things we are selfish and thinking of ourselves and thinking highly of ourselves or too highly of ourselves. It's 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 like um, it's this inescapable thing where when it's pointed out to you, you can't help but respond in a self-centered kind of arrogant um, manner. It's just that's the that's the default state of humanity. That's the default state of every single one of us. This this inescapable selfishness. For Paul, that's related directly to the fall, to this identification with this physical existence. And one, um, just slightly changing gears a bit, getting back to this idea of, you mentioned like being, uh, being children, children under the law. This is an image that Ashworth develops that's very interesting. I like the way he does this because he's trying to... Um, to figure out why in some places Paul will be like totally dismissive of the, of the law, of the Torah, or, or of laws in general, and at other times he speaks of them pretty highly as if they're a good thing. Well, Ashworth kind of pr provides the framework for how that all makes sense. Basically, he compares it to, um, to childhood, the, the family dynamic. And interestingly, interestingly enough, this kind of goes back to the show that we did on world mythologies, Witzel's book, and how central to the the um, the mythology that has kind of come down through through human traditions for potentially tens of thousands of years. It all comes down to these basically family dynamics. So you you find the same thing here, where um, he gives the example of like a child. When you when you have a child, it is kind of in this pre-fall state where it is imbued with this, you know, this spark of divinity that, that, is, that is seeking knowledge and seeking all knowledge. It just wants to explore. It wants to know everything um, because it doesn't know. <clears throat> and so it's got this curiosity and this adventurousness. But children can be too adventurous. They can wander into danger. You know, they can walk out in the middle of the road. They want to see what's on the other side, but they don't see the car coming that could run them over. So it's the, the child minder or the parent's role to protect that child, to put restrictions on its exploratory behavior. But the child will then inevitably um, turn against the parent for doing that. It, it will then get resentful and be like, whoa, you know, you can't tell me what to do as it grows older. That It's the, you know, the curse of teenage uh, angst that, you know, why, why do my parents tell me I can't do this? It doesn't make any sense. I'm just going to go off and do it. Right? That this is the, the this is the dynamic. This is the conflict between a child's mind and the parent who has more experience and can see more, and does it for the um, for the child's protection. 
the, the adult places limitations and restrictions on the behavior and the, the, the extent of, of the, the child's exploratory behavior for the child's own good. And that's inevitable. You can't escape that. Children need a child minder. Children need restrictions on their behavior. Otherwise, they won't survive. But the, the flip side of that is that the child now experiences that forbiddenness. And oftentimes, that if something's forbidden, it becomes even more um, desirable. So, so uh, an experience of this restriction will then often elicit that behavior. The child will now rebel and do the things that that are bad for them, specifically and and exactly because they have been forbidden to the child. So Paul places that dynamic in this kind of historical, like worldly kind, almost cosmic perspective, where humanity itself has been in its childhood, and humanity itself has this exploratory. Um, capacity. This is this essentially is just it's free will, and but there are certain things that will lead to disaster. Basically, there are certain things you do that will screw your life up roy- royally, mm-hmm. and potentially cut off all your possibilities. You know, in the case of death, it's like okay, well, you can't do anything now because you've done something extremely stupid, and now you're dead. So that that's essentially has been the role of the law is that we have this freedom, we have this, like in Zoroastrianism, all these choices between the the good and the evil, between the truth and the lie, but we can't see our way through, like we were talking last week. Um, So what the law does is, at at least it provides a structure, a framework, to help guide people along, to keep them roughly on the, the right path. It won't necessarily transform them. In fact, according to Paul, it will definitely not transform them. It is strictly this external system of rules and restrictions in order to just try to keep people in line you know, for, the, for their better interests. But now along comes the, the, like the, the Christ event, the, the crucifixion and resurrection where things change. So for Paul, this is a new event. So just like Adam was this um, kind of cosmic exemplar where his, his um, betrayal of God, his rebellion caused death for all. Now Christ's um, one action, his right action, as, he, as Ashworth translates it, his total faithfulness in the prophetic word that he receives from God, his total embodiment of the, the word and will of God, that creates a new template. So now that, that kind of provides the energy so that people can now see for themselves and experience that transformation for themselves so they can now see the reality of their lives as they've been living them. And once that transformation takes place, once there's been a radical reappraisal of your perception of yourself, and how, now that you see the, the, the way that you've been living in a totally different light, you, and so in the, in the system of Paul, now that you have kind of this direct access with, through the spirit of basically the mind of God and the, the righteousness of God, the right action of God, the way of behaving in the world, then you no longer need the law because you have this direct connection. So for Paul, the, the Christ event was this opening up of potential so that potentially all of humanity could then have direct access they could directly perceive right or wrong in any situation because of that that alignment with, um, you know, like with Zarathustra, the alignment of good thought. Well, I am thinking the thoughts of good thought, and therefore, why would I need, 
you know, some book to tell me what to do or some religious authority. I experience it for myself. So any going back to the law, any going back to the book would be a regression. Now you're just looking to something external to, you're looking for a child minder. You're looking to be a child again to, for, for someone to tell you what to do instead of knowing for yourself and acting for yourself. So the, the whole story is not only the, 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 the growing up, the maturation of humanity as a whole, but this is playing itself out within each individual. And that's how this process, like how humanity uh, transforms is through the transformation of each individual. So that's kind of the, the grand, the grand scheme how, uh, of how Paul is presenting this, this um, individual and worldly transformation, this total cosmic transformation. It is through, the, through this struggle in each person. And so right away we can see correlations not only with Zoroastrianism as we've been talking about it, but with personality disintegration from um, from Dabrowski and uh, Gurdjieff's ideas, because uh, some of the correlations with Gurdjieff are quite remarkable too, because um, of course Gurdjieff was trying was trying to instill in people that they are in a state of sleep, they are in a state of slavery. That whatever you think about yourself, whatever high opinions you have of yourself, actually you're, uh, you know, you're pretty wretched. Um, there are there there is so much that you could be, so much potential, and if you think that you've that you've reached at this point, then you're just totally full of yourself. And for Paul, it was the same thing. Paul, we were in a state of deadness, um, akin to Gurdjieff's sleep, that we are so hopelessly. Um, identified with our bodies that we can't see the unseen. We can't see the invisible things. We basically can't see reality. So for Gurdjieff, we were so, well, you could say the same thing. We're so out of touch that we, as he put it in in Beelzebub's tales, because of the, you know, the properties of the organ Kundabuffer, we see everything upside down. We can't see reality that at some point, you know, through, through the individual life, you know, as we, as we grow up and through the, the history of humanity, we've lost something. We've lost this connection. We've lost this ability to, to, to see and to, to actually do. And what Paul's presenting is the way for, well, Paul and Gurdjieff are presenting is the way forward, the way to actually transform oneself and be transformed in order that we can then do things do like with a capital D for, for Paul, that was right action. Um, well, translated as righteousness in, uh, you know, in a lot of translations. So that's, um, well, I, th- I think that's all I wanted to say on that, but, uh, well, you used one word in there, Harrison, and that was faith. And, uh, it seems that Paul was making this distinction between following the law and having a faith in the unseen, having a faith in the the spiritual hierarchy of the universe, of a God that does know of knowledge of oneself, of knowledge of what the true intent of a spiritual or spiritually connected life is. And this was a this was something that got me thinking about a number of things because faith is uh you, you know when you think of the word faith you think of a leap of faith you think of the kind of almost a suspension of disbelief for a moment in order to to do the things and to act on the correct impulses that you might not have all the information 
on that there's a, a positive impetus that moves one forward in a certain direction that is informed by a faith in doing the right thing. Sometimes, sometimes acting, quote-unquote, faithfully can get you in trouble as well. And this is where I think a reverence for knowledge of as many different things as possible helps to inform one, one's faith in one's actions. There might be information that, that is part of our thinking that may not even exist on a conscious level, but that affords us an opportunity to, to be connected with this information field, this, the unseen, as you put it, the, uh, the life of the, the spirit, the life of the soul, the life of intelligences that are of a cosmic nature. And, and so there is this, uh, this beseeching, this, uh, maybe that's not the right word for it, but certainly a, a call on the part of Paul to, to have faith, to, to have or make some kind of stretch in one's being uh, personally that would permit them to put external things aside for just a moment and move forward in alignment, move forward in a way that that would be closer to their own inner inner life, inner world, in closer to the non-physical, as you put it. And this is something that I wanted to actually ask you guys about, uh, because, you know, you sort of know what faith means. You've, we've lived with the word for a very long time, and yet this is a very central part of Paul's calling, because this is what he's asking us to do. He's asking us to in listening to his prophesizing, to have faith that, that these are, in fact, the words, these are, in fact, the messages that would seem to be coming from a place from within him, but also from outside of him, having made that connection. So faith, any thoughts on that? On, and what he meant by it, or, or what you understand of it? Well, I'll get into a bit of what Paul meant by it first. So for Paul, faith, um, you could call it faith or faithfulness. So this is one of the words I talked about in the introduction that has been potentially mistranslated in many cases in the, in the past, this idea of faith in Jesus. That's how, you know, that's how it's translated in the, in the New Testament. But the, the alternative and totally equally valid um, you know, linguistically acceptable translation is the faith of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So Ashworth is pretty clearly on the side of the faith of Jesus people, because there's kind of like a split in, in the scholarship on it, the people that still believe in faith in Jesus and the people who are like, no, it's actually faith of Jesus. So what he's arguing, and I think he's correct, is that what, what Paul's talking about is that when you have faith, you actually have a bit of, or the same thing as the faith, the faithfulness that Jesus had. And the way Paul talks about faithfulness is he gives the example of Abraham. Both Abraham and Jesus are kind of his exemplars from faith, of faith. And what they come down to is this total trust 
in the living word of God, the prophetic word, basically this, this direct connection. So it's, it's uh, faith in this word, even against evidence to the contrary. So, um, so for Jesus, this was the, for, for Paul, for Jesus, this was basically being willing to go to death, um, to be executed by the very people who he was supposed to be saving. So it seemed like a total disconnect. Well, if this is what I'm actually achieving, like I am, I'm, I'm this, this actor in the, the grand history of the, of the Judean people and the Israelites. And yet they're, you know, it doesn't seem to be working, right? This seems to be, there's a big disconnect in this story. It's not supposed to be working out this way, but he goes, but uh, Jesus willingly goes to death, um, basically becoming a curse, um, breaking the, breaking the law, the, the Torah by being hung on a tree, um, being, being crucified, that it's like, there's there are mul- there are multiple disconnections in this narrative. It's like this shouldn't be the way it's happening. But but for Paul, Jesus has such faith in that living word of God that despite those contradictions, he's sure it must be true. Um, that there's something else going on. Basically, there's more to the story than than uh, than is evident on the on the surface of things. So that's the kind of faith that Jesus had, and same with Abraham, who. You know, I believe the story is he was basically supposed to um, give, uh, be the father of many nations, essentially, and to to be the, the the originator of all these things. And he's this old man, right? He's this old man who finally gets a son. The, you know, the first miracle, and then God tells him to kill him, to sacrifice him. It's like, well, how am I going to have this progeny? You know, if I kill my son, but but he's, he, so he goes along with it, and God says, oh, you know, no, no, okay, yeah, you're good. Don't do it. He passed the test. He passed the test. Like the test was that in the face, uh, in confronted with this total contradiction, seeming contradiction between the, um, the word of God, that there is faith in the living word, you know, faith in that direct connection. So what for Paul, the, that is the, the goal basically to have is to, is to have faith in that unseen thing, faith in that living word, which for me, at least, um, one way of expressing it seems to be faith in the voice of conscience. I think that's one of the kind of direct applications of, of faithfulness as presented here is that, well, where, how do you experience the, the living word? Is it like a, a voice that you, that you hear, you know, talking off to the, the right side of, of your head, or is it something that's more felt than directly heard? Um, you know, maybe a combination of the two, but oftentimes Paul speaks of kind of this, the spirit being in our hearts. And there's, there's very many, you know, references to, to the heart as if, um, well, and if you just think about what the, the righteousness, the right action of God is that, that comes as a result of this prophetic word and this connection with the spirit, it's knowing what is right and what is wrong. And how do you know what is right and what is wrong within? Well, it's through your conscience, if you have one, and if you develop, if you have one that's been developed. So there is this kind of, this trust, this unshakable trust, ideally, is what the, is what faithfulness is, at least one aspect of what faithfulness is for believers. It is this kind of, this unshakable knowledge within oneself of the right thing to do in any given situation, despite what anyone else may say, despite evidence to the contrary, no, this is the right thing to do, even if it's going to your death, um, because that that's the ultimate kind of um, 
disconnect with reality. It's like, well, am I doing the right thing? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to die if I do this, but it actually might be the right thing to do, you know, for the right reason, for the right cause, because, um, no one wants to die, right? No one, how many people willingly go to death and, and, and choose it, you know, consciously, you know, not very many. That's why the, well, and I think that's why Paul lays out the, that just this kind of very simple, uh, Jesus story, the the story of this death and crucifixion. He's, it's not even much of a story. It's just a fragment. It's just that basically Jesus was crucified and and was brought, uh, you know, was resurrected. You don't have the whole gospel narrative in Paul. It's just these these basic elements, almost like these thematic, um, like essential elements that are that are pre- are presented and then which have relevance to each individual. Um, any thoughts on or any final thoughts? Because we're getting to the end of the show here. Um, well, yeah, just to just a little bit, just touch on the uh, my thoughts on on faith yeah, for trying to follow up on Harrison's uh, excellent definition, but um, just my you know down to earth uh, thoughts was that you know it it, it seems um, to be the you know this idea that there is good and evil that they're uh, they're objective things and that it's our duty as um, living beings to discern them and to to act on them and to keep in mind that there is something higher than us and that the highest um we could you know we don't know all of the prophets you know so for millennia you know people have been trying to find god and trying to discern god and some people say god is the you know the big guy up there and I don't know. I uh, I don't know if I I believe in in that. I rather would believe that that God, the highest God, is the mind that can discern things and learns and has contains all of these invisible things, the morals and ethics and mathematics and insight and love and caring and to, to always have faith that. Um, that that's real and that our actions matter because we, you know, we are kind of like soldiers out here. You know, we, you know, you get caught up, you get torn away from, you know, friends, family, everything, you know, goes, everything goes away, everything changes, you're tossed, you know, here and there, there's revolutions, there's constantly chaos, but to always keep the faith of a soldier that, that you are doing the best that you can for the good. And that even if that doesn't amount to anything, that in the grand scheme of things, all of us are together in that. And that everything, every action and every choice matters. So that. Well, I just want to say that was beautifully said, Corey. And uh, made me think that the good is, is this thing that exists both outside and inside of ourselves like a like a well of energy or positive force or constructivity choose your own adjective and that there is something that in making these individual choices and discerning between good and bad that we can add to in our daily day-to-day thinking and and acting and that's something that uh, seems to be a ongoing theme with the material we've been looking at and trying to understand for ourselves. 
and it's very pleasing actually to to go from one show to the next and and see how nicely all of these these texts dovetail one to the other and to get this grander picture of these figures in history that were able to describe these the different parts of the elephant from their respective positions and cultures and times in history and say there is something here there is something here and we can continue to build on that picture of the elephant in the room with all of these discussions and with the connections that you dear listener also make uh, for yourselves that's the hope of this show that there are some connections that you can make for yourself this isn't a we're not advocating becoming a Pauline Christian or a Zoroaster. Yeah, we are. Become all of them. <laughs> or a Wear Stoic. Wear all their hats. But certainly incorporate whatever you can, whatever makes the most sense. Uh, not, in a, not in a law-giving way, but in a, hopefully, in an inspired way, hopefully in a, in a, a way that uh, kind of lights up a little thought, a little something in you. Um, yeah. And, uh, with that said, next week we will be coming back to Ashworth, I think. Maybe we'll be getting into a bit more of the actual nature of transformation, what that actually entails for Paul and the role of, the role of an, uh, of an apostle, such as Paul was, an apostle or a prophet, in bringing the word and effecting that transformation in others. And what just what all that entails and what's going on there. And uh, hopefully, Harrison, it'll be a transformative experience for our listeners. Yes, we'll 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 slam the spirit of God right into your ear holes. Amen. And uh, and uh, and see what happens. And until that time, make sure to like and subscribe so that you can be alerted if you click that alerty button too you can be alerted to your imminent transformation um which will undoubtedly take place next week same time same channel so see you everyone take care